Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, well, good morning. We are going to continue our study in Zechariah. And we're going to pick up, we, we left off, oh, thank you. I forgot this too. Aaron, would you mind getting those notes on that chair for me? Could you do that at the end there? Yeah, for real. <laughs> These, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I got caught talking to people. I just lost track of what I was doing here. Okay. All right. Well, we're good to go. How's everybody doing? So we opened up Zechariah last time, and we're going to continue. We took the first six verses in kind of an intro to the book, and we're going to continue the study and pick up the first vision that he has from the Lord, starting in verse 7. It's the rider on the red horse, and it's, it's pretty deep. So we definitely need the Holy Spirit to, to teach us out of this because uh, there's a lot here on this one vision. It's going to be interesting. So let's, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. God, we thank you so much for preserving your word for us. Lord, for all eternity, God, and we will spend an eternity trying to study the depth of what it meant for you to hang on that cross in Judea almost 2,000 years ago, what it truly meant for the Son of God to take flesh and to go and take our place. Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you so much for it. As undeserving as we are, you did it still on our behalf. And Lord, we thank you that you are raising a family to spend eternity with you. And we pray that, God, as we unpack your word on this first vision from Zechariah, that you would teach us everything out of your word according to 1 John 2.27. Teach it to us, God, and give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the churches. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Okay, so as we always, as I always love to preface, um, and this one, this particular vision is pretty complex, and so I would encourage you even more than usual, we have got to lean on the Holy Spirit for understanding of what we're about to, to read in Zechariah 1, 7 through 17. And I just want to encourage you, I'm going to give you my perspective of what the Lord is saying in this, in this vision of the, the rider on the red horse, but I, I want to encourage you that you take it to the scriptures and prove that it's so from Acts 17, 11. Don't just take my word for it. I could be completely wrong in what the Lord is, is saying here. I'm just telling you that right out front. But I think we're going to, to see some very interesting things through this vision that God gave Zechariah, and we have a lot to learn about it. It's, a, it's something that I don't think shows up anywhere else in the Bible, and I'll explain why, obviously, as we go through this verse by verse on why I have this view, but I just have to warn you in advance, I have not found anyone else out there that has this view. Okay, so I could, be, I could be way off in left field here. Um, so just keep that in mind, please. I, 
I don't want you just to take my word for it. Okay, as you remember from the Old Testament timeline, from creation to the end of the Old Testament or post-exile, you have these different eras of time, the creation, the call of Abraham, the period of the patriarchs, the exodus, the wilderness wanderings, entrance to Cana, the conquest of the land, the period of the judges, where every man did what was right in their own eyes, if you remember that. Sounds very familiar to today. Then the monarchy begins, and remember Israel went astray where they wanted Saul because he was a very tall person that looked like the kings of the nations surrounding them. And despite that, God had a king in mind for them all along, which was Jesus and before him, David. But the children of Israel didn't want to wait for David or Jesus. They wanted Saul right then. So you have this period of the kings, then they go into civil war. They fall back into idolatry, the fall of the northern kingdom, the fall of the southern kingdom through Babylon. They're carried off to exile for 70 years. During those 70 years, this is when Zechariah is born in Babylon. He's born in Babylon in captivity. Daniel is prophesying about the, the ultimate arrival of the king and ruling and reigning. That's Jesus setting up the millennium kingdom. And then they get post-exile, Babylon falls, Cyrus the Great from Persia takes over Babylon and sends the Israelites back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, and he gives them financial incentives to do so. It's during this post-exile phase on the far right end of that chart that Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi are all prophesying to Israel. Now, if you remember, Nehemiah is trying to rebuild, or I'm sorry, Ezra is trying to rebuild the temple, and they don't get very far because the wall is destroyed So Nehemiah comes along, rebuilds the wall, and Nehemiah is encouraging them through Haggai to push on and continue rebuilding the temple. Well, they stall out because of lack of spiritual maturity. So then here comes Zechariah. God raises up Zechariah to encourage the people to spiritual renewal, a repentance of sorts, to turn back to God. And as a reminder, Zechariah is widely considered the apocalypse of the Old Testament. And remember that word apocalypse, it just means the unveiling of. So remember when we studied Revelation in verse 1, the revelation that God gave to Jesus is how that book opens. It's the unveiling of who he is. And it's just amazing how the world has this truncated view of apocalypse, of hellfire, brimstone, things falling from heaven, earthquakes, uh, destitute, depravity, people running for their lives. And indeed, when the world gets a true view of who Jesus is as a righteous ruling king to set up his kingdom for a thousand years, yes, that happens. But it's amazing that that word doesn't mean that at all. It just means an unveiling of who Jesus is. That's what that is. So this book in the Old Testament is probably the most messianic book in the entire Old Testament. You know, it's all about Jesus. And if you remember the Lord is going to speak of a lot about him in this book. The stone with seven eyes, which is a link to Revelation. We'll get there in chapter four. His throne, Jesus the Nazarene, which is an amazing tie-in to the New Testament. The king riding on a donkey from Zechariah 9.9, and surely he fulfilled that to the day from Daniel 9, and then when you get to the Gospels on why he had to ride in on that day, we'll look at that when we get there. The shepherd, his betrayal for 30 pieces of silver, and in fact, not only being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, but what they did with the money when he was betrayed, that they used it to buy something. 
is just amazing. Jesus being pierced, his return in power, destroying his enemies with his word. And in Zechariah 14, we're also going to see that he steps foot on the Mount of Olives. It's going to cleave and split so that when he sets up his temple, a river of life can go out through the east of the Holy Land. It's incredible. This book is so full from beginning to end, all about Jesus, what he did on his first arrival and what he does on his second. Now, if you remember, Zechariah's name means whom Yahweh remembers. He's the son of Berkiah, which means Yahweh blesses, who in turn was the son of Edu, which means the appointed time. So if you go from Zechariah's grandfather down to him and you put that genealogy together, it's at the appointed time Yahweh blesses whom Yahweh remembers. Now, what's amazing about this is here's the children of Israel. They've been in captivity for 70 years. They, they believed that they were, they, at some point, that God would show up and rule and reign, and they would have a king to usher them in to rule the entire planet. That's one of the reasons why they missed Jesus the first time, because they didn't understand that he had to die first, then come back and rule and reign. But they thought that they, were, they would be his people to rule and reign. They fell into idolatry. They disobeyed his word. They were taken into captivity for 70 years. And even in the genealogies, you have to understand how the Israelites view things like this. They take it very serious. Things about names, what names mean, what they name their children. Uh, even the, the very text of the word of God itself in what you could, some people call the Bible codes, but they believe that text is very, very, so inspired that it's the very blueprint that God used to create the entire universe. And you can actually connect that in scripture with John 1, 1, right? That in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And by him, all things consist and were held together. So when, the, when Zachariah shows up and he has this message of repentance and spiritual renewal, the genealogy is important to them because to them it's a message from the Lord that, hey, I'm going to remember you and bless you. Don't worry, just turn back to me at the appointed time. It will happen. So it's encouraging to them. Okay, if you remember the outline, we covered the first six verses in the intro last time, last week. It's really the call to repentance, the call to spiritual renewal. Here, starting in verse 7, all the way through chapter 6, verse 15, Zechariah gets 10 visions. You may classify them as eight, depending on how you look at them, but they all occur in one night. So these next five chapters all occur in one night. Zechariah gets all of these visions. Chapters 7 and 8 is an interlude regarding feast days. Chapters 9 through 11 cover the first arrival of Christ, and 12 through 14, the second arrival of Christ. So a really tight outline. Okay, let's pick it up here in verse 7. Upon the 4 and 20th day of the 11th month, which is the month Sabbat, in the second year of Darius. Now remember when we looked at this, Haggai and Zechariah, both their visions and their prophecies are being dated to the reign of a Gentile king. Now that's important because the times of the Gentiles that we looked at from Nebuchadnezzar all the way through the Antichrist are in play here. And that's why the Lord is pointing them to the second year of Darius so that to let them know, hey, the times of the Gentiles are continuing. You're in the middle of that period right now. Okay, so the second year of Darius. Came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berkiah, the son of Edu. Now remember, the Hebrews don't have a word for grandson. 
That's why he's the son of Edu, not the grandson of Edu. So don't let things like that confuse you as you study these genealogies. The prophet saying, okay, now the 24th day of the 11th Jewish month. Now, there is nothing trivial in God's word. You you can dig into all of these dates and they always have meaning. There's a reason why the Holy Spirit gives you a date in everything in the Bible. So as an example, in Genesis 8.14, God tells you what date the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. The Lord says, on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. Now, when you're just reading that and going over it, it's real easy just to pass by and go, okay, that's great. Why do I need to know why Noah's ark, when Noah's ark rested after the flood? Well, when you do your homework and you dig into it, you quickly find that Jesus was crucified. He controlled the timing. He was crucified on the 14th day of the seventh month on the Jewish calendar. On their religious calendar, that would be the first month. So they had these two different calendars, but the same day, Passover. Passover is tied to a date on the calendar, much like Christmas to us. To the Jews, it's the 14th day of the seventh month. Well, he's in the tomb three days, so he was resurrected on the 17th day of the seventh month. He exited the tomb. And so God is linking those events for us that Noah's new beginning on planet Earth was on the anniversary in advance of our new beginning in Christ thousands of years later. Noah walked out of the ark the exact same day, thousands of years earlier, that Jesus walked out of the tomb. And so you have to dig into these dates and figure out why does the Holy Spirit point to us the 24th day? There's, it's interesting because Malachi, Haggai, and Nehemiah are the only places in the Bible that something happens on the 24th of the month. And I'll just tell you right up front, I haven't quite figured out why. But we're going to look at the verses as to why. Okay, so just keep that in mind. That on our calendar, February the 15th of 519 B.C. would be when this vision started. Uh, the Babylonians renamed the Jewish calendar, so Sabbat was a name adopted by the Babylonians. Now, if you dig into that, when Nimrod founded Babel, all the way back in Genesis, when he founded that, so much of their pagan roots are ingrained in our culture. The names of the days of the week, the names of the months, the names of everything you and I just say, it all goes back to Babylon and is rooted in that. It's, a, it's really a fascinating study, but that's why the Jews called it that. Okay, this occurs five months after the building of the temple was resumed. So remember, they paused the building of the temple in Haggai 1, 14 through 15, and 2, verse 15. So five months after, three months after Zechariah's initial prophecy to open the book in verse 1, and two months after Haggai's last prophecy. So remember, Zechariah is kind of tucked in between Haggai finishing and then a couple months go by and all of a sudden Zechariah shows up on the scene. Okay, Haggai's last prophecy regarding the second coming of Christ to destroy the Gentile world powers was in Haggai 2, 21 through 23. So the children of Israel had just received God's word of their Messiah showing up to destroy the Gentile powers. Meanwhile, Zechariah opens his message with, well, now wait, those Gentiles are still in power right now, so it's not quite time yet. Okay, hopefully that makes sense. Now, if you study the 4 and 20th day or the 24th day, you have to kind of dig into this all throughout Scripture. 
But it's amazing that in Daniel 10 verse 4, Daniel gets a prophecy on the 24th day of the first month as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hedekai. Now, the prophecy that he gets is of the Greek empire being destroyed and split up into four powers. So it's, it's another piece of that Gentile world power puzzle. Haggai gets his prophecy on the 24th day in Haggai 1.15 and Haggai 2.10. Haggai 2.18, he also gets another one on the 24th day. Haggai 2.20, he gets another one on the 24th day. There's something about the 24th day that the Lord is, is showing them something to do with the Gentiles. Nehemiah 9.1, now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloth and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So the only other link you can find in the Bible to the number 24 is the 24 elders from Revelation. So in Revelation 4 and 5, in this vision of the throne room of the universe, you have the 24 elders, and they represent us, the church, that is pulled out of a Gentile group of people. And so I find it fascinating that the Lord on the 24th day is speaking to the children of Israel all about the Gentile kingdoms and them separating themselves out of that. And then you fast forward to Revelation, and here are the 24 elders that are the people of God, the church that the Lord has pulled out of the Gentiles. Now, don't misunderstand, please don't misunderstand, that the Jews could also be in that 24 elder group if they are saved during this age in the church. But it's pulling a people out of the every nation, tongue, and in every people group in the world for his name. Now, I, I think that's fascinating how the Lord has made that link. Okay, in verse 8 here. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse. And he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom, and behind him were their red horses, speckled and white. Okay, so first, note that Zechariah is not asleep. This is not a dream. He saw he was taken somewhere. He sees a vision. Okay, he sees a vision of Jesus. And I'm going to show you why I think that. But just to tell you up front, I think that this vision is the scene in between Armageddon where Jesus wipes out his enemies and then him going to rescue the children of Israel that have fled to the wilderness for three and a half years. I think it's that it's a spot in time right in between those two events. And notice up front that it's someone on a red horse. There are people behind him on speckled horses and then people on white horses. Now, there's only one rider mentioned because the focus is on Christ, but it's kind of implied that the other horses likely have riders, but even though it's not specifically mentioned. Now, all of these visions that we get into in Zechariah, they all have the same three things. There's a description, a question, and then an explanation, which I think is pretty neat as well. So they have the same pattern. Okay, the, mind, the man riding the red horse is also apparently the leader, and we'll see that later in a, in a few verses, because he's receiving reports from the other, the other riders or the other horses. Now, in verse 11, this man is identified as the angel of the Lord. 
Now, the angel of the Lord, it occurs exactly 68 times in the Bible, the first being in Genesis 16, verse 7, which is also fascinating that the first time the angel of the Lord appears is to speak to a Gentile woman, the, the handmaiden for Abraham, where that Hagar, where they tried to uh, become or, or really force into place the promise of Isaac. And remember, she's by the fountain of water in the wilderness, and the angel of the Lord appears to her and talks to her about her descendants. Okay, so anytime you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, if you read it closely, there's a couple of different ways you know if that's Jesus or not. Number one, do the people worship this angel of the Lord, and allow? does he allow it the worship? That's number one. Oftentimes, you'll see a, a someone bow down or worship an angel, and the angel will say, no, see that you don't do that. I'm a fellow servant like you. You know, stand up. We're here to serve God. Okay, that's number one. Number two, if they sacrifice something and it is accepted right there, then you know that's also likely Jesus. This happens to Samson's parents. Remember, they make an offering to an angel. He accepts the offering. Fire from heaven falls and takes it. And he called, remember, they ask him what his name is. And he says, why are you asking my name, seeing that it is secret? And in Hebrew, that word means wonderful. And that's the only place that fulfills Isaiah 9, 6, where Jesus declares he shall be called wonderful. So that's where he was called wonderful. It was right there in Judges to Samson's parents. But anywhere you see angel of the Lord, if you just read the event of what's going on, nine times out of ten, that turns out to be Jesus. There are a few instances where it is not. And you can find some of those in the New Testament. Okay, he's standing, so just picture this, the rider is on a red horse. Now, you may be thinking, well, why is Jesus on a red horse? In Revelation 19, he shows up on a white horse. Why is his horse red? So we're going to cover that in a second. But he's standing among the myrtle trees. Okay, the myrtle tree appears six times in the Bible, and it's always linked to the millennium. It's always linked to Jesus' reign on the earth for a thousand years. The myrtle, or the Hadashah shrub, it's the Jewish form of the name Esther. Okay, and that name Esther means something hidden, which is really fascinating. The shrub grew, up all, grew all over the land of Israel. It was a popular name for Israel back then. They used that name for, for the land quite a bit. It was featured in the, in the construction of the booths made during the Feast of Tabernacles. So if you remember these feasts of Moses, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, they would use a myrtle branch to create this booth. And they had holes in the, in the ceiling of it where they would lay in the wilderness or lay out outside in this tent and they'd look up to heaven and remember their wilderness wanderings, but God's promise of planting them in a land where he would dwell with them. Okay, and you can find this in Nehemiah 8.15 where it shows, and they that should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, go forth unto the mount and fetch olive branches, pine branches, and myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of thick trees to make booths as it is written. Now it's written in Leviticus 23, 33 through 44, the, the Lord gives the instruction on the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, it's, it's, it's suggestive of the, of the millennium because think about uh, God's people dwelling with the Lord, but we're going to see this in the Mount Transfiguration in a minute when the Lord shows up. 
in Isaiah 41, 18 through 19, and Isaiah 55, verse 13, the Lord links this to the millennium. Okay, so he's talking about his reign and the children dwelling with him at that time. Okay, when the Lord does the, goes up to the Mount Transfiguration in Matthew 17, he takes Peter, James, and John with him. Okay, and after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So the scene is Peter, James, and John go up with Jesus to this high mountain, He's transfigured into his glorious appearing as reigning and ruling as king from Revelation chapter 1. Moses and Elijah are with him long after they've, been, they've died, right? They're back with him, though, in the Holy Land, in this area. And Peter, James, and John are there, and look at what they say. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here if thou wilt. Let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. They were celebrating the Feast of Booths and Feast of Tabernacles, where the Lord literally will tabernacle with us in the flesh on the earth. And they wanted to make three booths to house them to celebrate that. Okay, so the myrtle tree, think about it as a link to the millennium, the, the millennial reign of Christ. Okay, he's also in the bottom now, why is the Lord on a red horse amongst myrtle trees that represent the millennium, and he's in the bottom? He's in the bottom somewhere. This word in the Hebrew, it literally means a ravine, a basin, a hollow, and apparently a place near Jerusalem. Okay, and so, so he's down somewhere deep in a ravine on this red horse amongst a scene that represents him setting up the millennium. And now behind him were other red horses, speckled and white. Now that word for speckled, it only shows up one place in the entire Bible, and it's right here in Zechariah. And the word, the word literally means reddish or tawny. So there's Jesus on a red horse. There's some behind him on red horses. There's some behind them that are just speckled, speckled red. And there's some behind them that are white. Okay, so hopefully you're getting the picture here. And he's in a deep ravine. So this is Jesus on a red horse amongst the myrtle trees, the deep ravine, and there's an army behind him. Okay, in verse 9, Then said I, O my Lord, what are these? So here's the question. I'm glad Zechariah asked. What are these? You know, there's some spots in the New Testament when the Lord gives a parable and the disciples had a chance to ask a question and, they, and they're like, no, we're good. And they just move on. Wouldn't you have, have rather them say, Lord, could you unpack that for us a little bit and just give us a, a few more verses here on what you're describing? There's so many spots where I'm so excited to get and talk to Peter and just go, man, what were you thinking of just going, no, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'll take that and go run with it. We, we're all sitting here wondering for thousands of years, Lord, what did you mean? And Peter could have just asked and it, we would have had so much more disclosure but in verse 9, okay, so Zechariah asks, Lord, what are these? And the angel that talked with me, so this is not the angel of the Lord, this is the angel speaking with Zechariah. 
said unto me, I will show thee what these be. And then the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, these are they, okay, so this is Jesus speaking, these, as in the people behind me, are they whom the Lord hath sent to walk to and fro through the earth. And they answered, so the people that he sent out, answered the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees and said, we have walked to and fro through the earth and behold, all the earth sitteth still and is at rest. Now, isn't that fascinating? So here you have, again, my perspective of this, Jesus shows up in Revelation 19. He destroys the armies in Armageddon, right? They're surrounding Jerusalem, trying to, to conquer and, re- and stop the return of the king. He shows up. He wipes them out. We're going to see in a few of these verses right here that the blood is up to the horse's bridle of the armies that he's destroyed. And as a result, he goes to then rescue the children of Israel. Remember, they say, who is this who comes with dyed garments? His robe is soaked red in the blood of his enemies, not in his blood any longer. So it would make sense that his horse is also red. Those of us that are with him, the armies of heaven that are with him that were close enough to the battle, they kind of also are soaked red. Some are speckled and then some are still white. Okay, so it's almost like a a radius of, a, of an explosion of war. You know, think about it like that. Some of us are with Jesus closer in the mix of the battle. Our horses get hit with the enemies. Some are just speckled, and then some are white. And then Jesus goes to rescue the children of Israel. So let's look at this. In Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Now remember in Exodus, God's, or the, the Lord says, our God is a God of war, a man of war. See, Jesus, for 2,000 years, all we have known Jesus says is this humble carpenter that came to die for us, to take our place, to take our ransom, to, to bury our sin in the grave with him, and to be resurrected after three days so that we could live forever with him. He came to wash our feet. He came to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But there's another side to Jesus that we haven't seen yet. And that's the side of a God, a man that makes war with his enemies. Jesus is not going to let what's going on in this world take, take place forever. There comes a time where he pulls us, the church, out of here. There's a time of trouble so great on the earth that it's going to be unlike any other time in history. And according to Zechariah, actually, chapter 13, two out of three Jews died during that time. In World War II, it was one out of three. And Satan is unleashed on the earth to try to wipe out Israel to stop this event. Because according to Hosea 5.15, they have to petition Jesus to return and plead for forgiveness, and then he shows up. And he comes in, in this scene in Revelation 19, with his eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. Those are ruling crowns, not just victor crowns. 
And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven, this is us. If you're in the church right now, this is where you are in this scene. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Do you know that you have a gift from the Lord that is a white horse in heaven that can travel interdimensionally and fly and come to and from the earth and from the throne room of the universe back to the earth, and you're going to carry out missions for the king on this horse? Isn't that amazing? I mean, it's not like we're going to be in, a, in an old riggedy Jeep, you know, going through the safari and bumping around and, and, and oh, my, my engine overheated. I've got to stop here. Jesus sent me out here, but I just can't make it right now. You get to ride on the greatest mode of transportation ever created, which is a white horse personally prepared for you by the king to carry out a mission in the millennium. Okay, the armies which were in heaven, that is us. And that's how he views us. We're not just a, a church that should be sit back and be still and not be engaged, not be active, uh, kick our feet up because the Lord's going to take care of all of this. He calls us his armies. We are with him. He is not one that wants to sit back and just take care of everything. He wants you engaged. He wants you in the fight with him. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of God, of Almighty God. Okay, the armies of the earth, they will be gathered together to make war with the Son of God, to try to stop Israel from petitioning his return. Now, a dear friend of mine was he, when he first became a Christian, um, well, those, a lot of you in here know him, but L.A. Marzulli, when he first became a Christian, he was taken, the Lord gave him a view of this scene from Revelation 19, and I find it fascinating. He was there for three seconds. He showed up, he was on a white horse, he was holding on to this mane, and we were, the armies of heaven, the church, were in this like horseshoe shape, and it's interdimensional. It's not three and a half dimensions like we live in right now. And so we were stacked up. The only way he could describe it is we were stacked up real high. But all of us could see right in the middle of that horseshoe, there was one person that everyone could see. And it was Jesus on a white horse. And he had this most radiant crown you could imagine and this white apparel. And all of a sudden, he was there for one second. Second, second, heaven and, and space-time just ripped open and we were all going down with him. He was re-entering the earth the second time. That was second two. And then second three, we were on the earth at, off of Mount Megiddo, which is where we get the name Armageddon. It's Mount Megiddo. That's what Har Megiddo means in the Hebrew. It's just Mount Megiddo. So it's just north of Jerusalem. We're going to look at a map in a second. But we were standing there, and he was about to make war as the armies surrounded Jerusalem. Just incredible. He had no idea what it meant, actually. He went to his pastor and was like, hey, I had this kind of dream last night. What do you make of this? He goes, oh, that's Revelation 19. So in starting in Revelation 16, verse 13, and I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, that's Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, for they are the spirits of devils working in miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and unto the whole world 
to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. So Satan is gathering and lying to the world to make them come together to take up arms knowingly against the Son of God. Now, there is nothing stupider you could do on on earth than take up arms against God, right? If stupider is a word. Um, There is nothing dumber you could do. There's nothing more arrogant you could do, right, than to knowingly make war against Christ. And then look what Jesus says. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together unto a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Har-Megeddo, Armageddon. And this is not Bruce Willis trying to save the world and destroy an asteroid and Aerosmith singing uh, songs and all that. This is, this is the war of all wars. Okay, look at Revelation 14, verse 20. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came up, came out of the winepress, even unto the horse's bridle, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. So unless you're a horse rider in here, then you may not know what a furlong is. Okay, the horse's bridle would roughly be about four feet high. A furlong is is approximately 200 miles, or 1,600 furlongs, I should say, should say, would be approximately 200 miles. So if you look at from, on this map, from Mount Megiddo all the way down is the Valley of Jehoshaphat in the south, and sure enough, it stretches that long, about 200 miles exactly. So that valley will be filled with the blood of Christ's enemies that are trying to wipe out Jerusalem roughly about four feet tall four feet high, and Jesus comes back, wipes them out. He's sitting there. The blood soaks his white horse and his garment, and that's this vision from Zechariah, the rider on the red horse, who's the angel of the Lord with the armies of heaven following him. He wipes out his enemies, and then what happens? We are dispatched, and we go to and fro through the earth, on our white horses, and we come back and report, Lord, that's it, you did it. The earth sits still and is at rest. Okay, isn't that amazing? Jesus' white horse turning red. Some of our white horses get speckled in the battle. Some of our other horses stay totally pure of white because they're outside the valley, so to speak. And, and then we go out to and fro. Okay, on, on, on verse 11 here. So after the war, not much of us, we go out and we're dispatched and sit still and at rest. So our white horses not only can travel interdimensionally, but we traverse the earth. We use them to go out on these missions. It's pretty cool. So finally, after thousands of years, constant war, the church being persecuted, the continual attip, attempt to wipe out the Jews, to take God's land of Israel, to subdue and subvert the word of God, the earth will sit still and be at rest. Now, you can link this also to the seven days of creation or recreation. Remember the seventh day, what did God do? He rested. And in 2 Peter, we know that a day with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. And you can link those seven days of recreation of God putting it all back together again to the 6,000 years roughly of human history followed by 1,000 years of rest 
of Jesus sitting on the earth and we are at rest. It's pretty amazing. So then, after we go around the earth and come back and report to him that, hey, the earth is at still and at rest, you've done it, you've wiped them all out. Jesus then goes to embrace the remnant of Israel who fled Jerusalem at the abomination of desolation. So remember, at the midpoint of the tribulation, the seven-year period, halfway through, three and a half years, 1260 days, 42 months, the Antichrist walks into the Holy of Holies, declares himself to be God, and in Matthew 24, Jesus says, when you see that event, you do not wait, you flee, you get out of Jerusalem, don't even go back to your house to grab something, and you, and you go out to the wilderness where I will take care of you and nourish you for three and a half years. So the children of Israel are there hiding out somewhere. A lot of people think it's the rock city Petra in Jordan, uh, which is very likely because according to Daniel, Jordan does not fall under the thumb of the Antichrist. And so it would give them safe passage to get there. But they're in this rock city uh, Petra, likely, even though the Bible doesn't specifically say, it's just the wilderness. And they're going to be nourished for three and a half years and taken care of. Satan tries to wipe them out with a flood, but God opens the earth, swallows that flood, just like God wiped out his, the seed of the serpent all the way back in Genesis 6 with a flood when he wiped out the Nephilim and all that that, God, that Satan was trying to do. Satan tries to wipe out his people with a flood. See, everything Satan does is a counterfeit. You can find that in Revelation. But after this, after the war, we go to and fro, the earth is at still and at rest. Jesus, in Isaiah 63, starting in verse 1, goes to rescue them. And look at this. This is one of the most beautiful encounters with Jesus and Israel in the entire Bible. This is Israel speaking. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? So his robe is dyed. Okay, it's a dyed, it's no longer white, it's dyed in the blood of his enemies. And he's coming from Basra, that area, the Valley of Jehoshaphat. That that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Okay, that's their question. Now Jesus answers, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. There is only one that speaks in righteousness and that is mighty to save, and his name is Jesus Christ. And they ask, wherefore art thou red in thine apparel and, wa- and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? He's going to look like he's been stomping grapes, making wine. Okay, but it's not that. It's the blood of his enemies that gathered to make war with him. So they're asking, what, why are your garments like that? In verse 3, he says, I have trodden the winepress alone. Even though, so even though we are with him as the armies of heaven, we don't even get to engage in the battle. He just does it with his word. He just wipes them out. And I still wish that he would give us just 15 seconds or something to go and do something uh, to fight some of these people, but we don't get to. We just sit back and watch our king take out everyone. And of the people, there were none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger. Okay, you will not be trodden under God's anger if you're in Christ. He took your sin for you. So why is he angry and treading you down for it? He wouldn't be. And trample them in my fury. According to 2 Thessalonians and 1 Thessalonians, we are not appointed to wrath or the fury of God. 
Now, don't confuse that again as we talk about all the time in here with correction. That's different. That's not the wrath or fury of God. And their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is, to, is come. And I looked, and there was none to help. And I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger and make them drunk in my fury. And I'll bring them down, bring down their strength to the earth. Boy, that is not something you want to be on the receiving end of. Uh, so let's make sure if you are here and you're not in Christ, please see us afterwards. But now it's amazing too if you go back and track this down from Luke. Remember when he opens up his uh, ministry in the synagogue and he grabs a book of Isaiah, Isaiah and he's reading uh, that he came to set the captives free, to set at liberty them that are bound, to, to uh, come and save and take our place. And he goes through this list of activities and then he stops and he closes the book and he says, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And you go back to Isaiah 60 and find where he stopped he stopped at that comma, and he did not read, and the day of vengeance of our God, because that was not his, ministry, his mission the first time. That's his mission the second time. And you and I, thankfully, praise God, will be out of here before that happens. Okay, to close up our verses here in Zechariah, verse 12, then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which thou hast had indignation these three score and 10 years. It's pretty neat. Jesus is asking the Lord, how much longer until they have, we, they, he and the Lord, have mercy on Israel? As if he didn't know. But it's just amazing. He's asking this question. And the Lord answered the angel that talked with me with good words and comfortable words. So don't confuse the angel talking with Zechariah and the angel of the Lord. Remember, those are the two different things. In verse 14, so the angel that communed with me and said unto me, Cry thou, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. And I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease. For I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. Boy, that's a, that's a sobering word from the Lord. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it saith the Lord of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. Now, stretching forth a line is often associated with judgment in the Bible. If you go anywhere you find that the Lord says, I stretched out a line or I drew a line, oftentimes he's speaking of judgment of some kind. Okay, to close out our, our verses here, verse 17. Cry yet, saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts, my cities... Through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad, and the Lord shall yet comfort Zion, and shall yet choose Jerusalem. What an interesting verse the Lord closes with in verse 17. Now, here he is, Zechariah's getting this vision. In Israel, they're trying to rebuild a city, singular, the city of Jerusalem. But look what the Lord tells him, tells the people of Israel. My cities, plural, through prosperity, shall yet be spread abroad. In other words, around the world. And the Lord shall yet comfort Zion and shall yet choose Jerusalem. 
So he's not just speaking of Jerusalem here. And during the millennium, his cities will be spread all over the earth. And you and I, if you're in the church, you have a responsibility. And so look at this in Luke 9, 15, starting in verse 15. What I'm imploring you to do is to take your call seriously and without hesitation. Look in verse 15 here to start in Luke 19. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded those servants to be called unto him to whom he had given the money that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained 10 pounds. So here's a servant that took something the Lord had entrusted him with. He went and multiplied it for the kingdom. It doesn't necessarily mean money. It could mean anything. It could mean uh, people, salvations, uh, supporting orphanages in Africa. It could mean anything. He took it. He spread it. And he said unto him, the Lord said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in very little, have thou authority over what? Ten cities. Ten cities. I find that fascinating as a link into Zechariah 1 verse 17, that he will have his cities abroad. And the question is, how involved will you be in those cities? In a, there's obviously also a new city. It's the namesake of this church that the Lord founded two, two years and nine months ago, as I was sharing with someone before church start, started, but uh, the new city, the new Jerusalem. And the second servant came saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said likewise to him, be thou also over five cities. And another came saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an astute man, thou takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he, the Lord said to him, out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. In other, in other parts in the Gospels, in these parables, you can find him say, slothful, lazy, you lazy servant. Thou knewest that I was an assured man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then, gavest not thou my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with interest or usury. And he said unto them that stood by, take from him the pound and give it to him that hath ten pounds. So, and they said unto the Lord, he hath ten pounds. And the Lord, and I mean, imagine the people around him going, well, wait a minute, Lord, he's already got ten. You want to take from this guy that's impoverished, only has one and give to him? And he said, for I say unto you that unto everyone which hath shall be given. And from him that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken away from him. See, the question is for all of us that are in Christ, can the Lord trust you? Can he give you something and entrust you with greater responsibility? And can he trust you to be faithful in the little so that in this time he can entrust you with the great? Can he trust you with something so small and simple right now that you do something with it to make ripples for all eternity so that when we are with him in the valley of Jehoshaphat and he wipes out his enemies, we go and tell him where everything's at rest. He rescues Israel. 
he sets up the throne of his kingdom for a thousand years that he comes to you and he says, I've got something for you. I want you to go and take care of this. You know, that's the question. Because right now you and I are racing to a time that that is going to be the only thing that matters is what did you do with the time, talents, treasure, your space on this earth for the kingdom? What did you do? That's the only thing that matters. What did you do for the spirit? Did you, from the Ten Commandments, did you take the Lord's name and take it in vain? In other words, did you take it and forsake your calling and do nothing with it? You know, the Lord has a call for you. It could be something so simple as showing up to breakfast at a round table every Friday morning for years to study a Bible. It could be that simple that then the Lord does something out of that that's radical and different. Uh, it could be something in your school. It could be something with your family. Uh, he, you have no idea what the Lord has in store for you if you're just faithful with the little thing at first. Okay, so if you're here, if you, if you have found us somewhere around the world and you don't know the king, it's very simple. Uh, Romans 10, 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It is that simple. So I implore you, if you do not know Jesus, please, in your bedroom, in your quiet place today, wherever you are, get on your knees and confess the Lord and you are instantaneously born again in the spirit, never to be apart from him ever again. And he wants that for you and you will start the greatest journey of your life you have ever been on, on this sanctification process where he, he will take you further and deeper than you ever thought you could. You just have to be humble and obedient and be willing to let go and walk with him wherever he leads you. So if you're out there and you've done that, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Or if you're here and you need prayer, send in to that email address. We've got prayer requests in the back, a box. Uh, let us know. We've got people that love to pray for all of you. So if you need prayer, let us know. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. God, we thank you that we can study Zechariah and we have so much to learn and to gather out of your word. And God, we pray that your word goes out and does not return void or in vain. And Lord, we thank you so much for everything, everything that you have blessed us with. Lord, we pray that you would Wrap your hedge of protection around these families, these marriages, these people. God, let, let your people have strength as they leave this place to go out into the world. We love you. We thank you for this time together. And Lord, we, we watch expectingly for you to show up in a mighty way at the baptism service next Sunday. Thank you, God, for your time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.